Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Doom, the first person shooter developed and published by id Software back in 1993 for the Microsoft DOS computer platform and then subsequently ported everywhere, literally everywhere, it might run on your refrigerator today in the years that would follow. We will start talking about that game in just a little bit, but first, as is customary, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 18, and I am having a blast. I hope you are all having a blast as well. If you'd like to reach out to me, let me know how I'm doing, give me suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you. There are a couple of ways you can get in touch with me. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. So if you feel so inclined, drop me a note, send me suggestions, feedback, comments. If you just want to talk about classic games or classic technology or just pretty much anything to do with gaming or technology in general, I'd love to have the discussion. I just love talking about that kind of stuff. For anybody who may be new, welcome. I do just want to talk real briefly about the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question. What is its historical context? How did it get made? Why did it get made? And then we jump into a pseudo-review. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numeric ranking or rating or things like that, but we do talk about each game from several different perspectives. First, we talk about the game's graphics. What does the game look like? We also talk about the sound and music. How does it make your eardrums feel? We then go into narrative and or story, if the game has one. We also talk playability and controls, and then the overall feel of playing the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, however many years ago. We do all that in order to determine how the game feels today. Is the game still worth your time today? And to rank the games to a degree, we issue a verdict, and that verdict can assign a game into one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, that means it is a timeless classic. It is still that darn good. You should play it. Highly recommended. You will almost be guaranteed to have a good time. Just below the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are the games that don't quite hit Pantheon level. They're still great experiences. They are still highly recommended for you to play them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or the genre in which the game exists. You should definitely play those titles. Don't quite hit that Pantheon level, but they are still darn good experiences and you should play them. Just beyond the Golden Oldies are our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the games where I can't really recommend to the majority of the population. They may have aged a little bit more poorly, or they might have had a couple of issues to begin with when they were originally released. These are games that you may have a good time with them, especially if you have nostalgia for the genre or you enjoy the genre in particular. Uh, You may still have a good time, but I cannot recommend them to the majority of the population And then beyond the mediocre mentions are the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. These games I cannot recommend to anyone to play. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they just may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is the first-person shooter, Doom. Doom is a first-person shooter that was developed and published by id Software and released in 1993 for the Microsoft DOS computer platform. Before we start talking about Doom itself, I think it's important to talk a little bit about the history of id Software. And for anybody who's been listening along, this is episode number three 
of what will be a four-part discussion about id Software and their early work works. We have already talked about Commander Keen in detail. We have also talked about Wolfenstein 3D, and actually, id played a role in Shadowcaster to a degree as well, which popped up during our Shadowcaster episode. So we've been talking a bunch about id Software. This is our third official kind of deep dive into their early works. But just in case you haven't listened to those episodes yet, I will go very briefly over what we've covered so far. So the team that eventually would become id Software met at a software distribution subscription magazine called Softdisk back in the 80s. They developed a relationship. They were creating games for Softdisk magazine, which would release titles every single month. Uh, They would be responsible for creating a brand new game every other month, effectively, for the magazine. Other uh, developers were working on other games as well. The id Software team eventually struck out and they went off on their own. And part of that was because John Carmack, who is one of the original founders of id Software, was and is a programming genius. He developed a way of side-scrolling smoothly on a computer screen, which had never been done before, or at least had not been done the way he had and as well as he had done it. Basically, he recreated a Super Mario-like experience on computers That console kind of smooth scrolling was not really available for computers back in the 80s. John Carmack put that together. He then was able to, based on that technology, John Romero, one of the other founders of id Software, thought this is their ticket out of soft disk. So they decided to strike out on their own and they created the Commander Keen series based on that technology. Now, that technology served them for a good six and a half episodes for Commander Keen, and then Carmack got the itch to try something different, and he wanted to do something that was not just a purely two-dimensional platform kind of game, which is what Commander Keen was. He wanted to start exploring three dimensions and three-dimensional worlds. And the team got together, and they started to think, well, what could they possibly do? They had previously... Uh, had a lot of fondness for a game called uh, Castle Wolfenstein, which was released back in the early 80s by Silas Werner. And that was a stealth action kind of game where you basically were a soldier that was responsible for navigating this castle full of Nazis and eliminating them. With that concept, they decided to use that general foundation for the storyline behind the game, and they created a game called Wolfenstein 3D, which would be a pseudo three-dimensional first-person shooter. And I say pseudo-dimensional or pseudo-third-dimensional because it's not like all of the objects in the game were 3D. They gave a 3D perspective in that you had a first-person view and you would navigate maze-like environments and it felt like you were in the world, but it was not truly three-dimensional. So that game released back in the early 90s as well, and now we are going to continue from that. Once again, if you'd like to learn more about either Wolfenstein 3D or the Commander Keen series, please reference our prior episodes. We go into pretty extensive detail about the development behind both of those games. So returning to the present, at least as it relates to post-Wolfenstein 3D, after id had worked on Wolfenstein and its multi-episode expansion, because there was an expansion to Wolfenstein 3D, which was called Spear of Destiny, they wanted to do something different, but they still wanted to work in 3D. And Carmack, like we had talked about, was a genius-level programmer, is a genius-level programmer. He had created the engines for all of their games thus far, and he was working on a new engine that he had been building since moving on from Wolfenstein. So once he had completed the engine work for Wolfenstein and the designers were working on the actual content for the game, John Carmack decided to move on and was experimenting with different technologies to create a new engine that would evolve upon the Wolfenstein formula. There were a few different ideas that were being thrown around about whatever id Software's new game was going to be. And what they settled on was an evolution of a Dungeons & Dragons campaign that John Carmack was running, which focused on using technology to combat demons. He wanted to create an experience combining action, dark humor, and occult elements, and also wanted to make sure that as you were navigating the environments, you would feel dread. Specifically, he was taking some inspiration, and the team was taking some inspiration from movies like Aliens and Evil Dead 2. 
So the team agreed on that general concept and development began in November of 1992. So November of 1992, development begins on what will eventually become Doom. So let's talk a little bit about that process and the process of developing the game. There was another individual that was part of the early id software team named Tom Hall, and he was very big on narrative. He believed that every game, every experience that you were putting out there needed or should have had some form of narrative structure and should have had a story. If you go back and look at Commander Keen, the reason that Commander Keen has a backstory and some story elements and cutscenes to the extent that they were able to do cutscenes back in the early 90s is because Hall believed that you needed to have narratives in a game in order for it to function. Similarly, in Wolfenstein 3D, he added story elements in between episodes. As you would beat each episode, you'd have a story screen that you'd be able to read what happened and what's going to happen next. So Tom Hall was very big on narratives. And as the id software team sat down and started working on their next game, he wanted to sit down and work on a full-fledged design document, which would be called the Doom Bible. Now, this whole concept of a Bible for a development of a creative work is inspired by television shows. And what Tom Hall had heard was that all television shows have some sort of show Bible, which would explain all of the characters, backstory, constraints, lore, basically the way that television productions had been working. And I'm assuming they still work this way today. When you create something, it's not like you just write a script and then you have a bunch of actors acting out scenes. There is a whole lot of background detail and background information that may never really make its way to the screen, but provides supporting context that allows you to shape what is seen within the confines of what makes it feel like a more fully fleshed out world. That's the whole concept behind a show Bible in a television show. Tom Hall was trying to apply the same kind of concept to the development of this new title. So he came up with a story involving scientists on the moon opening up a portal to hell, which would effectively begin infecting the base and overtaking the overall game world. So he was pretty excited about this concept and this this game idea and the storyline. John Carmack unfortunately dismissed the idea completely. And John Carmack was not a big believer of needing narratives in games. For him, story in a game just wasn't important. He was much more focused on the technology and the gameplay. He didn't really care if you had a story. If you had a fun experience, you didn't need the narrative. At least that's what John Carmack's belief was. I will say personally, I disagree with that. I believe that narratives in games, especially how first-person shooters would eventually evolve from just purely action-driven, almost mindless entertainment into really deep, to a degree, stories with Half-Life and Bioshock and other first-person shooters that would really leverage storyline and narratives incredibly effectively. I get it at the time that this was coming from the perspective of somebody who was really focused on just developing the engines and the technology for the experiences. So from that perspective, I see where Carmack's coming from. I personally disagree. I think narratives are awesome, and it's great when a game has a little bit of narrative, even if a game doesn't need it. And we've talked in prior episodes about platform games, and I've kind of said, I'd give it a pass. I don't really need there to be a narrative or a strong narrative in a platform game. It's always nice when they exist, though. So John Carmack went to Hall and said, we are not going to focus on the story. We are going to focus on the gameplay. We're going to focus on the experience of playing, not the narrative structure for the game. And as you would imagine, Hall was pretty disappointed. The rest of the id Software team also sided with Carmack. So Tom Hall's overall design got put on the shelf. He did, however, have the opportunity to keep most of the general backstory for the game. So that did remain in the game to a degree. It just wasn't the singular or central focus. So John Carmack began looking at the technology and began figuring out how he was going to create this game. And he began working on what would be a seamless open world. He didn't want to create a game that had the concept of levels. He wanted to create a truly open world kind of environment. Unfortunately, this would be a little bit ahead of its time 
the whole concept of open world or, or fully open immersive world in games wouldn't really come into its own until a little bit later. So the technology just wasn't quite there for Carmack to create what he was envisioning. I do want to say, though, with Tom Hall in particular, he really tried to keep this whole concept of the Doom Bible going. He reworked his design multiple times as Carmack was evolving through the technology. So if Carmack said, I'm going to work on a seamless open world, Tom Hall went back to the design Bible and he revised it to try to make that work. If the open world concept went away, then Hall would go back and he would revisit that design document and he would keep editing it, keep revising it so that he would keep it in line with what the game was eventually evolving into. Even though the narrative was completely thrown out, or at least mostly thrown out by the rest of the id Software team, Tom Hall believed that it would still be important to keep a unified, consistent design for the game itself. So he was effectively acting in that role, in that capacity to keep that design consistent and keep it documented and up to date as all of the technological pieces of the game were changing and shifting over time. Eventually, in early 1993, there was a press release, and it discussed most of Tom Hall's high-level ideas for the narrative about a player fighting off demons. And like we said, originally, the game was structured around the Doom Bible, at least insofar as the very high-level narrative was concerned, but little by little, most of Hall's design document, even though he was keeping it revised and up-to-date with all of the technological changes, was thrown out. The team really was focusing on the core tenets of building a more brutal, faster game than Wolfenstein 3D. Eventually, nearly all of Tom Hall's story was removed. Nearly all of Tom Hall's design was rejected. And that led to a huge rift in the team. Carmack and Romero were both looking at the game, and they believed that a more realistic military-based setting would have been just not entertaining. And that's what Hall was trying to go for. He was trying to drive a little bit more realism around the militaristic bases and the infection, or I guess the invasion of hell-like forces. And Carmack and Romero thought, if we're going too real, it's just not going to be all that entertaining to the player. Tom Hall was the lead designer for this game, just in case anybody would think otherwise. But Literally all of his design elements were either being revised or, for the most part, thrown out by the rest of the id Software team. And as you might imagine, this is just not something that is feasible or sustainable for any length of time. So finally, in July of 1993, Tom Hall was fired by id Software, and he went off and worked with Apogee Software afterwards. That was uh, that was the company, and we talked about this a few times before where id had previously worked a shareware distribution deal with both Wolfenstein 3D as well as with Commander Keen. This particular title, Doom, was going to be self-published, so they didn't have that same relationship with Apogee Software at the time. Apogee itself would evolve over time into more of a focus on three-dimensional worlds, which eventually would be renamed into 3D Realms, that company went on to become a major player in the first-person shooter scene with their most popular, or probably most popular release, being Duke Nukem 3D, which we also have an episode on back in our archives, so to speak. So feel free to check that out if you want to learn more about the development behind Duke Nukem 3D. Anyway, after Hall was fired, the id Software team replaced him with another designer by the name of Sandy Peterson, and between him and John Romero, they worked the majority of the levels for Doom. Now, like we were talking about, the real focus here with the id team was to evolve upon the Wolfenstein 3D engine, and they wanted to drive improvements into the overall technology. So recall that Wolfenstein 3D did not have fully texture-mapped environments. Basically, the way Wolfenstein worked is walls would have textures, so you might walk around in an environment and you would see brick walls or wooden walls, and doors would kind of have a texture to them. But the floors and the ceilings were just flat, shaded surfaces. Doom would have full texture mapping. The entire environment would be texture mapped. The floors, the walls, the doors, everything had a texture to it in the Doom engine. 
They also wanted to improve the speed of the engine. Wolfenstein 3D was already a fairly speedy engine in that you'd be able to navigate the environments very quickly and it felt very responsive. They wanted to turn that up in Doom. So the Doom engine was designed to be even faster than Wolfenstein 3D. There were also a number of improvements to lighting. Recall that in Wolfenstein 3D, the lighting was, generally speaking, pretty much set for a level. You didn't really navigate and find dark environments and lighter environments or spotlights or things like that. But in Doom, they wanted to make sure that they were able to implement different lighting for different environments. And what they did was rather ingenious. They didn't have the opportunity or the ability to do ray tracing. So ray tracing is a technology that is just today starting to become economical from a performance perspective, not necessarily from a cost perspective, but you are actually able to play and utilize ray tracing in real time today. Certainly wouldn't be able to do that back in the early 90s. So in order to create the sense that lighting was actually appropriate for a given scene, the team developed a way to calculate what color palette and actually change color palettes based on how far a given wall or texture was from a light source. The further away the wall from the light source was, the darker the color palette. So this is pretty ingenious. Think about this. They didn't really have the ability to have actual lit environments in that they would place a light on the wall and it would appropriately reflect that light around the environment and as you moved further away the light would become dimmer and dimmer so they basically made their own lighting engine where the further away you move from the lighting they changed the color palette to be a darker representation of the overall palette of the level i think that was absolutely ingenious and an ingenious way to handle lighting without having any impact or any significant impact on the computing power because it's not like the computer was really calculating light sources and light rays and things like that, it was simply swapping in different color palettes, which computers of the time could do fairly effectively. Going on to the overall level design, the level geometry for Doom was much more complex than Wolfenstein 3D. There were varied angles, there were different wall heights, they had better interactivity, there were switches in the environment which weren't really in Wolfenstein 3D. I do want to say, though, that there was an interesting limitation. Even though Doom was being designed to be a quote-unquote three-dimensional first-person shooter, it was still a pseudo-3D first-person shooter. It wasn't a true 3D space. And one of the ways that they were able to, to do this, or one of the ways they kept speed, is that rather than doing everything in 3D, all of the maps, all of the levels were still two-dimensional representations that John Carmack was able to do some nifty programming tricks to create a 3D perspective for the player in the game. What that meant is that as they were designing rooms and they were designing levels, they couldn't have rooms on top of each other because how could you have a room on top of another room in a purely two-dimensional space? If you were in 3D, you'd have the concept of height, and you'd be able to actually have rooms on top of each other uh, occupying different heights within the game world. In Doom, because it was still a two-dimensional thing, you didn't have that ability. So all of the maps, all of the levels were in fact designed in 2D, but the perspective was corrected to feel like you were in a 3D world. Now, there was a beneficial side effect there in that the mapping for each of those levels actually became easier because mapping in a two-dimensional space is much easier than mapping in a three-dimensional space. So interesting little tangent there around the level design and how, how that was impacted or how that evolved from Wolfenstein 3D. The character design and modeling for the game was all handled by Adrian Carmack and Kevin Cloud, who was an additional artist on the team that the id Software Company had hired. They used sculptures and other real-world modeling techniques to build all of the structures for the game, and then they would scan the, the models into a conversion program that John Carmack wrote, because, of course, he is their graphical and engine and computer programming genius, he's the one that makes all of the elements come together with his engines, and he was able to write a conversion program that would take all of those sculptures and create the graphics in the game world. 
As far as music and sound went, Bobby Prince was once again tapped to work on the music. He had previously worked on Wolfenstein 3D and also the later Commander Keen games as the composer for those efforts. So he was hired to write the soundtrack and the sound effects for the game. And he really focused for Doom on metal, heavy metal kinds of sounds from a soundtrack perspective. Also wanted to integrate ambient noises and a lot of animal sounds because a lot of the uh, creatures in Doom were very kind of evil, animalistic kinds of creatures. So he was able to use some animal sounds from the real world and mix them in and, and modify them in certain ways to make them sound demonic or like monsters. One piece of Doom that was really significant and would become significant even well beyond Doom's release was the whole concept of multiplayer and deathmatch. This is something where when you play a first-person shooter today, you almost always will have some form of multiplayer experience. That being said, not every single first-person shooter has multiplayer. There are some that are focused purely on single-player narrative, which is fine. But most first-person shooters have multiplayer built in. And most first-person shooters actually have a fairly competitive multiplayer uh, environment that they have built in. Back in the early 90s, this was not a foregone conclusion. This was not something that existed. But id Software recognized the need for trying to create this kind of multiplayer gameplay. And one of the reasons for that is because as they were testing the game, it was just insane fun. They had so much fun playing the game internally that they said, we have to make this for the, the actual release. We have to include it in the game for the actual release. And the rest, as they say, is history because multiplayer after Doom became a staple of almost every first person shooter that would follow. One of the other major areas that Doom innovated on, and this is something where it existed back with Wolfenstein 3D, but they really added on to the overall structure, was around the concept of modding. And what it had done, and they recognized back from Wolfenstein 3D, there was a modding community that had sprung up. And it always was a believer in enabling their players to build their own creations. And for Doom, that was no different. They actually wanted to make it easier for players to modify the base game. So they created the concept of the WAD, which is where all game assets would be stored other than the code itself. WAD itself is an acronym for where's all the data, which is kind of a cheeky acronym definition. But in this case, it actually makes a whole lot of sense because in these WAD files, you would have all of the information that pertains to the level, the textures, the colors, the lighting, everything was stored in these WAD files. And what that meant is that without touching the actual code for the game, modders were able to go in there and create their own WADs or mod it or modify and edit existing WADs in order to create brand new experiences without ever touching code. So you didn't have to be a software developer in order to create modifications to Doom. That resulted in a huge modding scene that would spring up. Um, there were plenty of mods. There were plenty of total conversions, which are effectively brand new games that are built entirely on the base engine or the base game. And one I want to talk about very briefly because I have a personal interest in it is the Alien Total Conversion. So back in the 90s, after Doom had released, like I said, Total Conversions and mods, they were everywhere. There was an Alien version based on the movie Alien that was released, and I thought it sounded awesome. I thought it looked awesome from what I saw on the little sleeve or box that I picked it up, and I, I wanted to play it so badly. And I could never get it to work. I probably should go back at some point and see if it's out there. I'm sure it's out on the internet somewhere because pretty much everything is out on the internet nowadays. Anyway, those were a bunch of the innovations that id was looking to roll into the Doom engine and eventually the Doom game. And they were very, they were very focused on ensuring that their player base or potential player base would remain aware of what they were doing. So they would kind of have a drip feed of information around what they were trying to do and how they were evolving Wolfenstein. They already had a very large fan base from their prior work, 
So there were a lot of people anticipating their next game. And with all of these changes, all of these innovations that the team was working on, to say people were eagerly awaiting the title would be an understatement. Despite missing its original release date, the first shareware episode for Doom was released on December 10th, 1993, online via the University of Wisconsin Parkside. And they put it on one of their file servers and they basically opened the floodgates. Another man by the name of Jay Wilbur had been hired as the CEO of the company, and he was in charge of all things business-related with id Software. Pretty much everybody else in the team or on the team were all technical people. Wilbur believed that the mainstream press wouldn't really be interested in Doom, so he had only taken out a single ad in a magazine. He focused instead on direct-to-consumer marketing via message boards and online forums, and that was where they were primarily giving this drip feed of information. They were basically posting on forums or message boards or bulletin boards, and they were trying to drum up interest amongst the actual players versus trying to get media outlets to cover it. Despite the lack of any sort of official marketing other than that single ad in a magazine, within 30 minutes of the shareware release, so many people had tried to download the game that it crashed the entire network for the university. The university's entire network crashed. So to say the game was popular, <laughs> even without that, I guess their marketing must have done something right because it was it was literally breaking the internet or at least broke breaking the network over at the university now you guys know that i enjoy talking about ports of the game and doom was ported everywhere they were ported everywhere even back when it was originally released but would then go on to be ported literally everywhere in the years and the 20ish 30ish years that would follow now most of the ports of doom had to be changed in some way, especially when we start talking about consoles, because consoles of the time just weren't quite as powerful as what you would have on the computer. And this was right around the time when computer processing power was starting to eclipse the console processing power. In the past, in the 80s especially, consoles had very dedicated equipment, especially for graphics processing and sound processing, that actually made consoles a little bit of a better spot for games than what computers would be. At this point, computers were eclipsing consoles, so in order to get Doom to be ported onto consoles, a lot of changes had to be made. Some you needed to simplify levels, others you had to remove characters and monsters, some consoles had to play at a lower frame rate than what the PC was. Sometimes you had to uh, display less of the actual game area, so the viewport for the game had to be shrunk. There were a lot of different versions of Doom and a lot of different concessions to get those versions to work. Anybody who may be interested in seeing all of these different versions, there was a video that Digital Foundry had put out several years ago that was really well done and compared all of the different Doom ports of the time with each other. If anybody likes talking about ports or looking at ports as much as I do, I highly recommend you check it out. I do want to focus on one particular port with Doom, and that is the 3DO port. So just for anybody who may be unaware, you guys know that I have some interesting, I'll say, uh, console likes and dislikes. I am a big fan of full motion video, and I like some of the more esoteric consoles. Of course, I love Super Nintendo, Nintendo in general, Sega, Sony, Microsoft. I love all of the mainstream kind of stuff. But I also love some of the more esoteric releases, like the Philips Compact Disc Interactive, which we talked about fairly extensively on a couple of episodes so far. One we haven't talked about all that much is the 3DO, which was originally released by Panasonic, and eventually Gold Star would have a version of the 3DO as well. There might have been others out there. But the 3DO was a CD-based console, and it was created because in the mid-90s, the entire console market just exploded, and there were consoles coming out from everybody back then. It wasn't just a Nintendo-Sega thing anymore. Now you had a ton of different players. Everybody was trying to get into the game, and 3DO was one of the consoles that resulted because of that. It had originally been conceived by Trip Hawkins, who was the founder of Electronic Arts, and pretty much everybody, I would think, knows about Electronic Arts, or at least knows of the company Electronic Arts. And the concept behind this console was that rather than having a 
tight or a tightly controlled hardware ecosystem like Nintendo and Sega had created, um, they would, 3DO, the concept there would be that they would create a format or a technology that multiple hardware vendors would be able to implement. And when they were originally conceptualizing this console, they wanted to get things off the ground with high quality titles. And Doom, like we talked about, was getting ported everywhere. So the team behind 3DO decided that 3DO and Doom would be a great fit. So they went out and they acquired a license, which they worked with a publisher. They gave this license to a publisher called Art Data Interactive, and that was led by a man named Randy Scott. Back in 1995, Randy, as many CEOs do when they're trying to market things, he went out and he said that the 3DO version of Doom was going to be the best game ever, the absolute best version. It was going to be just phenomenal. Everything was going to be new. They were going to have higher resolution graphics. They were going to have full motion video cutscenes. I would have loved that. But they were going to have all of these different things in there, new maps, new weapons. Everything was going to be bigger, better, beyond all of the other Doom releases. Even better than the PC version is what he was claiming. He had held up a disc. This was an interview he was in. He held up a disc, and he claimed that most of the work in the game was effectively completed. He said the title was ready to go gold. And for anybody who hasn't heard that phrase before, back when games were getting worked on, they they had the concept of going gold, which meant all of the development, all of the features of the game were complete. They were ready to send it off for manufacturing. So he said, basically, Doom for the 3DO is ready to go. So they hired... A, a woman by the name of, of Rebecca Heineman, and we've talked about Rebecca Heineman a little bit before. Now, they hired her to handle all of the final porting duties for the 3DO. She had had a very strong familiarity with both the 3DO system and id Software's prior titles based on some work that she had done previously. It was a natural fit, and given how close the game was to completion, according to uh, Randy Scott, it should have been a no-brainer, it would have been a slam-dunk kind of thing. Uh, only it really wasn't. It turned out that Randy Scott and Art Data Interactive in general had been lying the entire time. It turns out he was grossly incompetent and incredibly uninformed about how to create a port of an existing game. He believed all you needed to do was compile the code and the game would magically run. And to add in weapons, all you had to do was scan in an image and it would just magically work. That is just not the way games are made. It's not the way ports are made. Every single piece of hardware, especially back then, had a different ecosystem, required different codes. They had different different ways of development and integrating graphics and sound and just overall capabilities of the systems were different. That sometimes, like we talked about before, you have to make concessions. So this was not an easy thing. The game had been promised by Christmas of 1995, So Rebecca Heineman, at the point she was hired, effectively had weeks to get it working. And unlike the claims that had been made, there was literally nothing completed for the game. There was no Doom for 3DO because it just didn't exist. It was entirely fabricated. So Heineman reached out to John Carmack and they spent a day sitting and talking and trying to go over how this could possibly be. Carmack sent over his Atari Jaguar port code. He actually worked on the port for the Atari Jaguar. So he sent that to Heinemann as a base. And she, though, still needed to make multiple code changes to get it to all compile for the 3DO and also had to make a lot of different concessions to get it to run at all on the console. Even near the end of the project, so Heinemann is working like crazy, even near the end of the project, Randy Scott was still entirely clueless. He asked for an additional level to be added in a week, and Heinemann said, that is impossible. So he basically said, well, can't you just download one from the internet? And so he doesn't even understand intellectual property rights. If you would have released a game with a downloaded file from the internet without the appropriate licensing, you'd be sued. Even back then, you would be sued. He had no understanding of game development and apparently no understanding of business. Despite all of that, the port did eventually end up getting completed, but there were severe limitations and there were none of the promised additions that Randy Scott had made. 
It ultimately led to his company going out of business. They only sold a few thousand copies of Doom. Even though 50,000 copies had been made, the expectations were sky high. They only sold a few thousand out of those 50,000, and it was generally considered a failure, despite the fact that Heinemann literally pulled a miracle in turning around the port in an extremely limited time frame. Though I will say, there was one shining light in this whole thing. The music. Randy Scott himself was a member of a garage band, and rather than convert Doom's music over to the 3DO using samples and synthesis-based instruments, which was going to be a challenge, he stepped up and he and his band recorded the music for Doom, which, if anybody goes out and listens to it, and maybe I'll include one of the tracks in an interlude here, it sounds freaking awesome. I mean, it sounds so good when you have real metal riffs built into the thing rather than just synthesized sounds. It sounded amazing. That is the one aspect of Doom on the 3DO that um, was actually light years, or maybe not light years, but definitely beyond what had come before in, in the other games or other versions of the game. Despite the 3DO port, which was not the greatest success story, it wouldn't prevent Doom from having a truly significant cultural impact. It became a cultural phenomenon. It led to the wholesale adoption of the first-person shooter genre. You kind of know whenever an entire genre pops up around a single game and you start calling all of those games a clone of that original title, you kind of know it's a big deal. Think about things like Dark Souls, where now... Every game is a Souls-like, or not every game, but there are so many people trying to make these Souls-like games. If it wasn't for Demon Souls was really the original uh, with the Souls title, if it wasn't for that original game, the whole genre may not exist. Same kind of thing with Doom. It's not like it invented the first-person shooter genre, but it certainly was the one that had the most cultural impact and then ultimately led to a glut of Doom clones being a thing across the 90s. There would be multiple sequels that would be released. Doom 2, which was pretty much a direct sequel. There was Doom 64 for the Nintendo 64, which was actually a completely different game. Um, it didn't have, it wasn't just a port. It was literally different levels and a different design, which was very interesting. And then Doom 3, which was pretty much a focus much more on horror elements and a little bit more of a slower burn than what the action fast paced gameplay of Doom and Doom 2 was. Even recently, back in 2016, Doom was rebooted with the uh, titled game Doom, which wasn't really a remake per se, but it was a brand new reboot with a whole new kind of structure, and then Doom Eternal would release several years later. They were both crazy action experiences that are probably uh, one of the more fine examples of the modern first-person shooter experience, at least as it relates to the Doom style of first-person shooter. Across all of the different versions of Doom, there would be multiple, multiple millions of copies sold across the world. I mean, this was a juggernaut. It remains a juggernaut today. And even today, the mod community for the game is still going strong. Just a few years ago, John Romero returned to his roots to release a brand new episode in megawad format, might I add. So they're still using the WAD format. So he released this new episode called Sigil. And he had Buckethead, who is a heavy metal guitarist, provide the soundtrack for the game. So even today, Doom remains in the cultural spotlight. As for id Software itself, with the success of Doom, they had to figure out what their next major effort was going to be. They had dabbled in pseudo-3D worlds, but they still had two-dimensional roots. They realized, though, that the future was going to be full 3D. And id Software, as with many technological advancements of the time, were going to be at the forefront of that 3D revolution. That, however, is a story for another time. We 
are now going to shift to talk about the act of playing Doom and how it feels to play Doom today. So, as a reminder, as if we really need one, Doom is a first-person shooter that was released back in 1993, and just to talk a little bit about the game's structure. As with a lot of first-person shooters of the time, it was split across several episodes. For the original Doom, there were three episodes in the game. Each of those episodes would have multiple levels, and they would eventually culminate in some sort of big, bad boss fight. Now, with Doom... Each of the levels would build on each other. Each of the episodes would build on each other with new monster types, weapons, basically all sorts of new mechanics and difficulty would be gradually introduced to you over time. Though it wasn't one of those things where everything was disjointed. Now, there wasn't really a narrative, so to speak. There was a little bit of a narrative in between episodes, but it wasn't the kind of episodic kind of game where we have nowadays where you have full-fledged, almost television-style-like episodes with narrative arcs and continuations and things like that. That just wasn't Doom, uh, despite the best efforts of Tom Hall. That just wasn't really a thing. So, instead... Each episode would really be focused on introducing new gameplay mechanics and new monsters rather than a continued or new story and built upon story. The first episode of the game, as with many titles back then, were released as shareware. And this is one where I do have a very personal story around this. Doom was the first game that I got when we finally got a gaming-ready PC back in the early 90s. So I had had a very old IBM-based PC with a monochrome monitor, and it really wasn't capable for gaming. Or at a minimum, we didn't really have many computer games. We weren't focused on computer gaming at the time. I was a Nintendo guy, so we had the NES, and that was where I did all my gaming. Eventually, we would get a Tandy machine from Radio Shack. It was a 486SX 25 megahertz machine with, I think, four megabytes of RAM, and I was in heaven. I loved the fact that I had a full-color monitor. I was able to... We got a um, disc of San Diego Zoo Presents the Animals, which came with it, and I would just play that thing continuously because I thought the fact that I could actually watch video on a computer and see illustrations and listen to sounds was amazing. The whole concept of multimedia was blowing my mind. So I didn't really have any games for it, though. And Doom was the first shareware that I got. I got this this game. I got it in the in the uh, cardboard sleeve and it looked awesome from what I could see. And I brought it home, opened up the sleeve. I popped the disc in the drive and I installed the game and the rest was history. I was hooked. I was hooked on gaming from that point on. Doom was just awesome. I, I don't know exactly how well it played. Because I did play around with Doom on certain period uh, appropriate hardware nowadays, and it seemed to run pretty well. I didn't have or I don't have a 486 25 megahertz to be able to replicate that exactly, but it probably didn't play quite as well as as I remembered it. Uh, I probably had to decrease the size of the viewport to get it to play with acceptable frame rates on that particular machine. But anyway, Doom holds a special place in my heart because of that. Being my very first computer game that I played in earnest, it will always just reside there as an indelible memory. Getting back to the game itself, aside from my personal memories and experiences, your goal in Doom is to destroy everything in sight. And you are the Doom guy. And that's pretty much it. That, that, that's the narrative. This game really doesn't have much of a story. It is all about the gameplay. I do, do want to say, though, and I do want to focus a little bit on some of the other mechanics in the game. There is a difficulty selection. For me, I always do whatever is considered normal. I am curious what others do. I know there are some people that believe, unless you're playing on the hardest difficulty, nightmare, ultra violence, whatever, unless you're playing on harder difficulties in general, you're not really experiencing the game. I feel differently. I think that whatever the normal difficulty is, that's probably the way the developers intended it originally. That's how they designed the game. So that's usually the way I play any games that I try is on whatever the game considers normal. Not to say that I don't try other difficulties or harder difficulties, but that's just me. I, I kind of like to go in with the baseline for at least my initial playthrough. So as with other first-person shooters, there were multiple weapons. 
Unlike Wolfenstein 3D, though, this had a lot more weapons. Wolfenstein 3D, I had only a handful. Doom would expand upon that dramatically, and every single weapon in the game felt amazing. So I just want to talk about a few of my favorites here. The shotgun. I am a shotgun guy in games. I love shotguns. That's pretty much the primary weapon that I try to use whenever I have an opportunity. The Doom version of the shotgun was chunky and powerful. It was my go-to weapon. It just felt incredibly satisfying to use. I also really enjoyed the chain gun, which would fire a constant stream of bullets, and the speed of the bullets was so severe that if you would shoot an enemy, it would literally freeze them in their place as you were shooting them, kind of doing a, a dance of death as you were peppering them with bullets. It was awesome. I also enjoyed the BFG because, well, it, it's the BFG. I mean, you can't can't really get enough of that. Although there's not nearly enough ammo to, to make you be able to use it constantly, I did enjoy using the BFG whenever I could. Beyond those weapons, there were also some more traditional games or traditional guns like a rocket launcher. There was a plasma weapon. There was also a chainsaw, which was kind of cool, though I didn't really use it all that much in my playthrough. Those were all great, but I generally gravitated towards the shotgun for the majority of my playthrough, which, as I've mentioned in prior episodes of the podcast, that's just kind of my playstyle. For whatever reason, that's what I like to do. The game also had some power-ups, things like extra damage and shielding and some that would give you the ability to have additional hit points beyond your typical 100% kind of thing. Uh, it was not really all that varied from a power-up perspective, but pretty standard from a first-person shooter standpoint. So before we go in to start talking about more of the specific elements around things like graphics and sound, I do want to take a look at the back of the box, because back in the 80s and 90s in particular, we didn't really know what a game was going to be like without looking at the box. You might be in a store and you might be thinking, well, I don't know what game to get, and you look at the box and that is what ultimately sells it. Doom, like we were talking about, only had a single-page ad in a magazine from a formal advertising standpoint, and I will tell you just from a personal perspective, I was not frequenting bulletin boards and message boards back before Doom came out, so I didn't have much uh, insight into what was going on with Doom until I saw the shareware cardboard sleeve in a local computer store. So the back of the box, in this case, was actually very effective. So... For Doom, the back of the original PC release, the back of the box, says Episode 1, Knee Deep in the Dead. Episode 2, The Shores of Hell. And Episode 3, Inferno. And that was pretty much it. <laughs> now, I will readily admit, I do not own a boxed copy of Doom. So this is off of an image from on the internet just to see what it says. My understanding, and I could be wrong about this, but my understanding is that that particular box was the mail order box. So back when Doom was around, we talked about shareware before. When Doom was around, you would buy or, or get shareware for effectively free. That's the first episode of the game. You would then call in or mail in the rest of the payment for the other episodes, and then id Software would send you the other episodes in a box. So I believe, I think that that was the mail order box, which is why I didn't really have much in the way of description. That being said, there were a number of other versions of Doom that did have descriptions. My shareware version, the one I was telling you about that was in a cardboard sleeve, that did have a description on the back of the box. I don't have it readily available right now, but it does have a description on it with actual text and features and things like that. And then later versions of Doom, like Ultimate Doom and Final Doom, would have descriptions on the box as well because they were more traditional retail kinds of things. So a little bit of an oddity there with the uh, with the box. Certainly that particular box, the three episode names, that would not have been what you see on store shelves. At least I'm assuming not. I don't think I've ever seen that version of the box on a store shelf back then, but I could be wrong. If anybody knows for certain, please let me know. Anyway, we're now going to start moving into some of the more specifics about the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. Now, obviously, 
the graphics in Doom are not as amazing today as they were back in 1993. That's just a fact because technology has continued to evolve beyond that. But I will say, they still look good. It's a very retro-feeling aesthetic, and modern shooters have attempted to capture the look and feel of the original Doom, some of which have, and a lot of which have not. If you somehow didn't know that Doom was Doom, you could mistake it for a modern retro first-person shooter title. The other thing I want to mention around graphics is the smoothness of the gameplay, and this kind of goes back and forth between the playability aspect and the feel and the graphics, but the reason that the gameplay is so smooth and the reason that the frame rate is so smooth, at least on a machine that can play the game well, is because the graphics engine is just highly optimized and the way that Carmack coded the engine means that the graphics can fly at you very quickly. Uh, All the monster designs, by the way, not quite as terrifying today as what they were back then. Back in the early 90s, if you got cornered by a pinky or a cacodemon or pretty much any number of monsters in Doom, you were going to be a little frightened. And I remember playing back in 1993, and when you walked around and you kind of heard the low low rumble or um, kind of gurgling sounds or just the kind of growls that the monsters were were making almost off screen in some instances. And then, of course, when you would actually see them visually, uh, it was a little scary. It was scary back then. Now, of course, today uh, it's not scary that much at all, both because we're all grown up and also because the um, the technology just just is a little bit less advanced than what we have today to really make some scary experiences. But back then, super scary graphics were, were great. And, you know, just going into the sound of music, since we were talking about the, the monster noises anyway, the sound effects are perfect in this game. Every enemy growl sounds just like you would definitely hear it out of a minion from hell. Every weapon blast, all the weapons feel and sound meaty and and weighty, if that's even a a way to describe it. But it just sounded great. All of the sound effects were were awesome. The music, though, for me, it it takes the cake because there there are countless tracks in Doom that are highly memorable. The episode one, map one track, by far, is one of my favorite pieces of music in any game. It is, it's the kind of music where you can put that on in any number of situations and it will work. It's a good workout song. It's a good kick and butt song. If you're trying to, you know, kick butt somewhere or just kind of going through and playing an action game, any action game, that song will go to it. It is about as iconic as game soundtracks can be. All of Doom, all of the Doom music that uh, Bobby Prince worked on just sounds stellar and it is highly memorable. It's highly influential. A lot of games beyond doom tried to capture that doom magic and didn't really do it. I mean, there were a couple that, that did a really good job of capturing kind of the overall feel and the music and things like that and and trying to make it be on par with doom. But doom really did set the standard, especially on the music front. It was stellar. Moving on to the narrative and story, I mean, the only thing I can say here is it's it's doom. There is a story all about you being a space marine to battle the forces of hell, and after each episode, there is a single screen that recaps the story so far and introduces you to the next uh, episode. But the story was not the focus here. This was all about the gameplay. This was all about the gore and the violence and kind of the visceral kind of feeling of playing the game and mowing down scores of enemies. I am curious what the narrative would have looked like if Tom Hall was allowed to inject more of his story-based focus and narrative into the game. Like we had talked about, his whole idea around the design and the narrative was repeatedly shot down by the rest of the id Software team as being unnecessary for this kind of game. So I do wonder what it would have been like. I don't know that we would have ever gotten a Half-Life kind of experience back in 1993 with Half-Life being one of the first first-person shooters that really put story front and center. So I don't know if we would have gotten that, but I am curious what would have happened if Tom Hall was allowed to 
integrate more of his narrative and story elements into the game. We'll never know, but I am very curious what would happen. Regardless, the narrative and story for Doom is fine. I mean, it's it's there to a degree, but this game is really not about the story. It is all about the carnage. Moving on to the playability and controls, undoubtedly, the game is simple by today's standard. You you move around with your keyboard. You can move around with the mouse a little bit. No mouse look. It's not like three-dimensional kind of thing. You can't look up. You can't look down. You can basically just walk forward, backward, side to side, turn left and right, and obviously shoot. There are also a number of switches and doors and keys you have to find different doors that you can pick up and to open those you would just hit the space bar on your keyboard so the controls are very simple there is no jumping there are no sloped floors when you would shoot at an enemy because of the way the game was designed and because there really was no three-dimensional or true three-dimensional aspect to the game all you had to do is point in a given direction and pull the trigger and you were going to hit an enemy So it didn't matter if they were standing on a ledge above you, if they were standing below you, as long as you had a visual on them and you were pointing straight at them, you're going to shoot them, which to a degree makes things simpler. It does break the immersion a little bit now that we're used to today having mouse look and having to actually aim at the creatures. So if you're going for a headshot, you've got to aim at their head wherever they are, whether they're above you, below you, to the side, whatever the case might be, it's a lot more uh, in your face today and a lot more direct in your day or today as you're trying to aim at monsters. Back in Doom's time, that just wasn't a thing. So I can't hold that against it per se, but definitely a little bit aging there um, just because that control style is now considered deprecated in favor of a more traditional kind of mouse look and key binds and things like that. You can set up the keyboard and the key binds along with the mouse to have a pseudo-ish mouse look kind of feel. It's not true mouse look, but you can set it up so that that you're moving with or in combination between the keyboard and the mouse. And it feels great. It feels good to play. It's really not anything you need to get used to. It's just something that is just a little bit different than what people would be or what would feel commonplace today. Not a bad thing, just a different thing. So overall, how did the game feel to play today versus 30 years ago? It still feels great. There is a smoothness to the movement. The animations are terrific. The sound effects are awesome. The graphics are great. It is super fast-paced gameplay. You're constantly moving around. They throw tons of enemies at you in certain in certain maps and certain episodes, and it never gets old. I remember when we were talking about Wolfenstein 3D. I had some critiques about the game and about some of the unevenness of the difficulty and how most of the episodes, at least through episode five, kind of built on each other and would ramp up the difficulty as you went. And then episode six just felt like they threw balance out the window and just threw literally everything at you with some really poorly designed maps from my perspective, at least. Doom didn't have any of that. Doom actually, it got more difficult as the game went on, but it still felt balanced the whole way through. I didn't have any issues with Doom from a design perspective, from a map perspective. It all felt great. I loved the fact that all of the levels had as many secrets in them as they did, and I did not find every single secret. I cannot find every single secret. Some of them are hidden really well, but I love the fact that they're there, and they do add a degree of intrigue to the game. Sometimes, because I really felt like finding them, I would just walk around all the different walls in a level and just spam the space bar looking for hidden areas. Sometimes I'd get lucky, most of the time I didn't. But the fact that they were there spurred me on to do something and spurred me on to continue to play the game. Not that there, the other elements of the game wouldn't have kept me doing that anyway. It's just that icing on, on top that just added to the overall experience. The weapons felt great. Everything felt powerful and palpable. The shotgun is awesome. This is one of the better shotguns in games, especially around this time. I think it's way better than the Duke Nukem 3D shotgun. And we talked about that when we had our Duke Nukem episode. I just didn't feel like that shotgun was really powerful. It felt underpowered. And Duke Nukem almost felt like they they were designing the game to make you have to use every single weapon. In Doom, you certainly should use every single weapon, but you didn't have to. Not in every instance. There were some, basically every gun in Doom 
kind of felt like it would stand on its own and you could have fun with it. If a weapon was your favorite, you'd be able to keep going. And I can appreciate that. I really appreciate what they did with Doom in that aspect. It just, it worked really well. The enemies, we talked about this a little bit, were absolutely terrifying. If you got cornered by an enemy, it would be really bad. Not quite as scary today as it was back in 1993, but still effective. It just was a joy to play. I loved playing it again, and I had played it before, obviously, back when I was younger, uh, but I just played it recently, and it really didn't feel like it lost much. So to me, this is an obvious entry into the pantheon of classic gaming. It is a true classic in every sense of the word. It plays just as well today as it ever has. If you haven't played it, you need to. This game is a prime example of id firing on all cylinders. They, they took what they learned, and they had learned a lot between the Commander Keen games and then Wolfenstein 3D and its expansion and trying to really get what it means to develop a first-person shooter. They, they refined the formula, and finally, with Doom, they had reached the mountaintop, they, and they just knocked it out of the park. This is an awesome game. It has barely aged at all. If you didn't play it before, you should play it now. This is definitely a member of the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. That was our episode on Doom. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out and let me know how I'm doing, give me feedback about this episode or other episodes or the podcast in general, or give me suggestions, guidance, ideas, or just talk about classic technology and classic gaming, I'd love to hear from you. And there are a couple ways you can reach out to me. I do have a Twitter handle. It is at Classic Gaming T. I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. So feel free to reach out in whichever mechanism you prefer. I would love to hear from you. Before we call it, I do want to mention next week's episode, and this is something we're doing a little bit different, in celebration of the 32nd anniversary of the founding of id Software, which is right around now, our next episode is going to continue our id story, and we are going to focus on the first-person shooter that would once again redefine the industry. We're going to look at Quake. So if anybody has any particularly fond memories about Quake, feel free to write in. Let me know. I am definitely interested in hearing what you think. At the same time, I recognize you're probably listening to this wherever podcasts live, and it could be any number of places. Wherever that is, it would be great if you could leave a review. I really am interested in developing this into the best possible podcast it can be, and the only way to do that is by getting feedback from all of you. This is not about bolstering star counts or just trying to harvest a bunch of five-star reviews unless they're warranted, in which case, awesome, we're doing something right. But I really want to make sure that we're creating the content that everybody wants to hear. And to do that, and the only way to do that, is if y'all let me know if we're hitting the mark. So hopefully we are, but definitely interested in hearing what everybody is thinking as it relates to the overall quality and just the way this show goes. We are still growing. We are still developing this community. We will always be developing this community. I'm excited. I hope you are all as well. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Quake. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>